Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to air your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to Politics Done Right from the studios of KPFT 90.1 FM Houston, your community radio station. We have a great program for you today. Scottish PhD candidate in America, she points out there's a better way. There's a better way to this economic fraud we have here. You got to talk, listen to what I talk about, the discussion we had with her. Victoria Young on American anti-intellectualism, something that you have to listen. She's being interviewed. Frank Schaefer, co-father of the right-wing evangelical movement. He apologizes. He points out it was nothing but a misogynistic exercise to put down women and it continues and then of course there's chris murphy the senator goes on to the house the senate floor and points out the realities of the right wing why is it that you care about a fetus but you care so little about those who are born those who matter we have a whole lot to talk about folks you got to stick around for this entire hour you can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politics done right. On YouTube Live at politics slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. Before you get started, please remember to keep your community radio station in your minds, KPFT in your minds. Talk about it. Tell your friends about it. Tell them you know about this station in town, 90.1 FM Houston, that needs your support, that is there to provide what that nourishment that we need. 713-526-5738. KPFT.org. Visit us online. Contribute online. KPFT. 90.1 FM. You can visit us at kpft.org. Folks, you know what time it is. Let's get what? Busy. The genesis of the right wing movement and the apology on the same. Check this out because this guy was part of the movement. He was part of the creation of the right wing. And what he feels now is that we unleashed something that is destroying this country. It is destroying women. It is doing all that is wrong. Check this out, and then from Schaefer, and then we'll take it on the other side. It's always good to say, I am sorry. GOP is rife with hypocrisy. But one of the more stunning examples is their so-called pro-life stance. While women and children are literally dying of COVID in red states. That's because the anti-abortion movement was never about life. But yet another rallying cry churned up by the fake outrage machine 
to win elections. Joining me now is Frank Schaefer, director and author of several books, including Why I Am an Atheist Who Believes in God. Frank, it's always great to talk with you. You know, you were around at the beginning of the creation of this, this what's now called the pro-life movement. But I mean, it really wasn't about abortion. Well, sadly, it happened in large measure because of the work that my father and I and Dr. Sievert Koop, who became Surgeon General for Ronald Reagan, did in bringing a film series that I wrote and directed based on a book that Sievert Koop and dad wrote called Whatever Happened to the Human Race to millions and millions of evangelicals. Now, what will surprise you and many viewers is to understand that when we took that series out, Many evangelicals were pro-choice. In fact, Dr. Reverend Billy Graham, the great evangelist, Dr. Criswall, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, these men refused to participate in our seminars when they had been avid followers of my dad and our work before that. And I was dad's nepotistic sidekick. Now, introducing me tonight, you mentioned a book, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God. But after that came out, I've spent the last six years writing an apology to women and families in America that we damaged uh, called Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy. And the reason I have done that is that my family unleashed the rabid religious right on women when, in fact, evangelicals were evenly divided and even a little bit pro-choice. So one of the lies the religious right tells and one of the lies the Republican Party tells is somehow that part of evangelical theology the theology of people like Reverend Billy Graham, Dr. Criswell, the editors of Christianity Today magazine, who also in those days were pro-choice, has always been like the Catholic Church on this issue. It has not been. Yeah. So the first lie is evangelicals, as I point out in my book, Fall in Love, Have Children, was that evangelicals somehow were pro-life. They weren't. They were like other Americans, many shocked by women having to go to back alley abortions. A lot of people like Dr. Graham, for instance, who told me I was in the meeting with him at the Mayo Clinic with my dad. And we met in, in Billy's room where he was undergoing a checkup. And Billy said, I can't preach to women and tell them what to do about this. Men don't get pregnant. How dare yeah. I do that? Yeah. So he was reasonable on it. So the first lie. Uh, Joy, is that we come from a place where we have acted as if this is part of Christian theology. It is right. not. And the second thing is, is that my family, sadly, as I talk about in the book, went out of its way not to stop abortion, but to put women back in their place. This mm. was a misogynistic movement. I was part of it. And that's why I've spent the last six years writing an apology and what I hope is the most pro-family, pro-child, pro-woman book out there. And I'll tell you something. You cannot be pro-family unless you are pro-choice. Yeah. Because if women are treated like nothing more than incubating vessels, second-class citizens, and this horrible burden that nature and evolution or God or whoever the creator was puts on women, if this is not balanced by the right to choose, we cannot have an equal society. Women cannot have careers. Women mm -hmm. cannot have lives. And 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 so I am so sorry for the part I played. I am so sorry on behalf of my father for the part we played. We were a misogyny team. We were not pro-life. We were a misogyny team. We were not pro-life. And it is evident. All the statistics tell you the same thing. And it's good that Schaefer comes out 
and says, I apologize. And because he was at the genesis of the movement, because he was a part of the movement, because he, along with his family, were the creators of this movement, having him out and showing this and explaining this and letting others see this won't convince all, convince all, but it will convince some. I want to play this video for you with um, what Chris Murphy had to say. Mr. President, I understand that my Republican colleagues have very strong views on issues related to abortion. But I listened to my Republican colleagues come down here one after another today and talk about the sanctity of life. At the very moment that moms and dads in Michigan were being told that their kids weren't coming home because they were shot at school due to a country that has accepted gun violence due to Republicans' fealty to the gun lobby. Do not lecture us about the sanctity, the importance of life when 100 people every single day are losing their lives to guns, when kids go to school fearful that they won't return home because a classmate will turn a gun on them, when it is in our control whether this happens. You care about life? Then get these dangerous military-style weapons off the streets, out of our schools. You care about life? Make sure that criminals don't get guns by making sure that everybody goes through a background check in this country. We're not unlucky. This is purposeful. This is a choice made by the United States Senate to sit on our hands and do nothing while kids die. It's terrifying to me that this generation of kids goes to school expecting that a shooting will happen at the place where they learn. And it is, of course, a choice that we're making because there's no other country in the high-income world that experiences this rate of gun violence. And it's not that the United States has any more mental illness than other countries. It's not that the United States spends any less money on law enforcement than those other countries. The difference is, is that the ease of access here in the United States to these high-powered weapons is just absolutely differentiating from every other nation that we do business with. These broken brains in other countries may end up in a fist fight, um, maybe in the worst case, uh, someone getting stabbed. But here in the United States, it ends up with dozens of people getting killed in places like Sandy Hook and others across the country. So we make a choice um, to populate this country with wildly powerful guns that are designed to kill as many people as quickly as possible. Um, and we get the policy that we have chosen to live with. That is 100 people every single day dying from guns. I mean, it's really stunning how cavalier Republicans are with life after birth. It's not just the way they accept the carnage that exists in this country due to gun violence. It's also the way in which they just wave a hand to 700,000 people that have died from COVID, uh, how they're fighting measures designed to save people's lives in this pandemic. Um, they care a whole lot uh, about uh, the unborn. But once you're born, there doesn't seem to be a lot of concern for the livelihood of individuals who are on this planet with us. And so um, you know, whether we adopt their phraseology or not, I don't know. But I think more people need to do what I did last week, which was call them out on this pretty incredible hypocrisy. Here's a story that I want to tell. And I want all of you to listen to this and listen to the story clearly. 
Uh, look up the history of Scotland, right? And by the way, I'm no Scottish, I'm no expert in Scottish history. I just know enough to get me in trouble. You know, that's all that I really know. Enough Scottish history to get me in trouble. But what I've always followed was that Scotland wanted to disassociate itself from England, United Kingdom. And there are reasons why, right? Under Thatcher, the United Kingdom tried to behave like Donald, not like not, not Donald Trump, Ronald, well, not Donald Trump, but Ronald Reagan. They were East Kumboom, if you will. Uh, under under uh, Thatcher, everybody saw the light, right? I mean, but somehow they kept electing her or, or she kept her prime ministership for a long time before Tony Blair came. But there was always some angst with Scotland because, you see, Scotland believes in its people. It's sort of a nationalist government, but in the positive manner. So they really want independence from Scotland. So anyhow, the reason I wanted to give that little preamble, I mean, independence from the UK, from England. The reason I gave that preamble is the following. My daughter, as you guys know, had a stroke. And she, her left side is compromised. And specifically, her fingers on her la- left hand, her left hand is very compromised. And this part, she, there's a study using robotics, robotic gloves, to kind of wean the brain back into working those fingers, etc. That is the purpose. That requires intellect. That requires people who can think outside of the box. That requires people who can program something. That, pe- that requires somebody who's willing to experiment, to think all these good things. Need to do what's the major role we always talk about. It requires somebody who knows how to innovate. All right? One of the selling points of our capitalist system is the reason we are allowing the rich to be parasites to the poor. The reason we are allowing the wealthy, the corporatists, the executives to be parasites on the average American citizen is because absent that, we don't get innovation because Innovation is based on people thinking that there's going to be big profits and that's how one gets innovation. I have proven the fallacy about that over and over again, but that is the belief. That is a belief that was inculcated into the minds of too many Americans. Somehow, greed is important. Uh, Gecko from Wall Street, greed, greed. Greed, that is what makes America successful. Greed. No. Greed is what made America say, I will get as much as I want at all costs. If it means destroying Panama. If it means ripping off the bauxite from Jamaica. If it means excising all the bananas out of Guatemala and all these things at lower cost and, at the, at, and make the part farmers get little. That's what greed does. That's not what... Innovate. That's not innovative. That is getting wealthy off of greed. Greed is charging an arm and a leg for oil prices during a pandemic when people are just recovering and not feeling for them. Greed is charging $300 for a vial of insulin when it only costs you $6 to manufacture. Greed is charging 
creating a new product called uh, Clarinex instead of holding on to Clariton, which is basically the same thing just to enrich a few and charge the average American citizen more. That's greed. That's not innovation creating. Okay? Now, going back to my beautiful daughter's experience this morning. We go into the lab. She's going to be fitted with this thing that you see on the screen right now. She's being fitted with a robot created by this 28-year-old doctoral student named Melissa from Scotland. Okay? And it's amazing. Melissa doesn't know me. Melissa doesn't know Ashley. Melissa doesn't know anything about us. But we're talking. We're talking. And we weren't even specifically talking politics. But I just simply said one phrase. And the one phrase I said is, <laughs> you're from Scotland. Did you guys try to, um, to, to get your independence from uh, England, from Great Britain? I mean, not from, from the United Kingdom. Yeah, yeah, we didn't get it, but we got some compromises done and, you know, uh, some other things. And, yeah, you know, we, we, we wanted it. And one of the reasons we wanted to stay in the, get out of the UK as well is we wanted to stay in the European Union. That's what the Scottish girl said. The Scottish doctoral student who got her doctoral degree today when she was done with my daughter's experiment with the robot on her arm. Okay. But here's what she said. Here is what she said. Bridge MCP, that's a robot, robotic finger stimulator uh, for my daughter's arm developed by that 28-year-old uh, doctoral student. Uh, and my daughter was a test case for the device. Now, here's what she says. Oh, you know, um, none of my family ever went to college. Um, you know, I thought I was going to be a dancer. When I, when I was in school, I really didn't have, you know, nothing to push me or anything like that. In fact, I thought I was just going to get a little job maybe at a hospital or somewhere, and also become a dancer. That was my goal, okay? And what else, Melissa? But you know what happened? After we attempted to secede from the UK, our nationalist government decided to give everybody free college education who wanted it. Nobody in my, my, my family went to college, and I said, what the heck? I am not really into college, but I started to work at this hospital, and I wanted to follow everything this person did because it was kind of cool. And then I went to college, and I loved it. And when I, 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 I got through my, my first degree, and got through my second degree, and then I saw a program in the United States that, wow, I liked. And I said, let me apply for that doctoral program. And by gosh, I got into the doctoral program. And my thesis was to use some of the knowledge I got in Scotland about physiology to create a product to help those people who've had strokes and lost mobility in their limbs to help them get it back. And I created this product that you see on the screen to move my daughter's fingers. Where am I going with this? 
absent. We talk about a place where opportunity arises for all. We talk about a place where if you want to succeed, you can succeed. But if you don't see the avenues to succeed, you'll never get the opportunity. Like I say, have I said all the times, America is not a meritocracy. You must be invited to be meritorious. It's not a meritocracy. You have to be invited. I did well when I developed software. A lot of times I wanted to pat myself on the back and say, it's all me. Hell no. First of all, thank you, Texans, for creating a great university called the University of Texas with your tax dollars. Thank you, Texans, for creating an atmosphere back in the early days that afforded me the ability to work for NASA, Ford Aerospace, and all these other corporations where I also gained experience to produce. And thank you, taxpayers, for creating all the things necessary to create that platform where I could develop something. Stop. Now we have Melissa. Melissa then said, uh, well, I, I won't go into the, the, the total details of her, but suffice it to say that because her, her scholarship is up now, she's heading back to Scotland. She does want to come back here and, and, and finish the product, etc., 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 etc. But here's the deal. No, she intends to make some money off of the robot. Absolutely so. She's going to capitalize on that robot because she invested her time and energy in it, but she doesn't want it all for herself because guess what? That robot was developed with a grant from the NIH, the National Health, the National Institute of Health. Your tax dollar, Daniel Lado, your tax dollar helped develop that robot that is going to help my daughter's hand come to fruition. Guess what? Yes, we all do this together. And she needs to monetize that robot and make some good money on it because it's her invention. It's her intellect that was primed by the Scottish government, that was primed by the American government, that was primed by the, the individuals who, at which school she goes to, which is a private Catholic school. So it's all of us together. The private school, the Scottish government, the UK government, the American government, we all work together and they created a robot. It's not one person. Melissa understands that it's not Oh, how all her. No. No. So therefore, she's going to come back and she's going to do a good thing. She eventually is going to get it monetized into making a product for everybody can use. And she'll make a decent living from part of it. But she'll be doing a whole lot of other things. Okay. So the goal here, the intent here is to show if everybody gets the opportunity to succeed, think about all those people we are leaving behind. I've seen people everywhere, from the barrios to the ghettos to Appalachia. I've seen people with intellect that never came to fruition because, because there was no path. Society is there to give a path. Society should be there to give a path. Why not? Is it because those in the oligarchy, 
want to remain those who choose. We will choose who will join the fold. We will choose who we choose to succeed. Those that will not buck the system. Those that will not do anything to try to make... Melissa is going to be a radical. She believes that everybody deserves an education. She's used to very high taxes in Scotland to support the society and live a very good life. Not having the stresses of have not having health care. And she pointed out, yeah, Great Britain, great health care in the, in the uh, uh, national health system, but NHS, National Health Service. But she said, but we did, we, did, we did England better. Inside of Scotland, we don't only pay for your health care. We also pay for your medicines. America is crazy. The richest country in the world. But what makes it also poor is that that rich is not distributed equitably. I didn't say equally. I said equitably. The people that least produce, the people that least have intellect are the ones with the most because they know, the, they decide to work it within the capitalist system. In other words, most of those, a CEO knows nothing about petroleum, knows nothing about all those things that make that company succeed. And the workers who actually make it succeed are the ones who have to go begging for a handout. And you don't think you're a slave? And you don't think that you have ceded your intellect to those that are undeserving? You don't think that? One of the things that America has been great in doing, in not teaching civics, in breaking the spirits of people, in breaking the spirits of women, in breaking the spirits of everyone in some form or the other, they emasculate white men by giving them that false belief that the rest of us are against them. They emasculate black men by trying to turn them into murderers and rapists when all the black men I know are great fathers. They, 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 they try to remove the rights of women. You simply break people up into pieces. You destroy what they really believe in. You destroy their internal worth. And you know what you get then? You know what you get then? You get the disparity you see here in America. That is what you get. So, to Melissa who is developing... Uh, that robot to make people's hands from strokes and other issues work better. She is the microcosm of what we could be if we ever decided to be a society who cared, really cared about humanity, who really cared about ensuring that all of us, not some, not the chosen, by not the ones that the few decide to choose because they're less likely to buck the system, but the ones who can really, really make a difference. So I urge you all, I urge you all uh, to, to see it. Uh, I <laughs> Daniel Ado says, LOL, only 17% of black men are working fathers. Apparently, Egberto knows them all. 
Mm, wow. Um, you must got that 17% from some sort of right-wing station. But what you better do is figure out the numbers again, because that is a, that is a completely and entirely false statement. I mean, just saying, just the numbers, uh, just putting the number up that way should have you embarrassed to put that out there, to even put that out there is embarrassed. And you know, Daniel, I don't think, um, I don't, I don't think you on, you, I don't think you know, and I don't, I don't think you want to be a racist. I don't really think so. Like I said, I know you personally. What I do think, however, is that that is how you think something, uh, that you can make a point to maybe, embarrass me based on my hue i don't know ashley is listening she just said her mother yes her uh melissa's mother went back to school because it's free and became a nurse at age 60 her wealth the family's wealth increased which means they paid even more taxes so that they could support us all it's called giving it back giving it back thank you for putting that out dear ashley baby that is so important Okay, I, I, I needed to tell that story because, you know, it's funny. I told Melissa uh, while I was in there with Ashley putting, uh, testing out this robot on her hands. I said, this is something that I've got. I told her this is going to be my show today. I wanted this on the show because I tell you, I don't want, you know, for those people that are hardcore, um, hardcore, you know, look, the mind is an interesting thing, right? Uh, let's say uh, the mind is an interesting thing. There are people who would cut themselves up, cut themselves up to figure out, just to be right. I think I played that piece yesterday uh, that Norman gave us. And Norman was partially, well, Norman was right, right? But the people that I'm trying to reach are not the unreachable. I, I use the unreachable to help me reach the reachable. Today we have... Victoria Young, she is an involved, informed, and active parent of the No Child Left Behind era. Victoria said that she witnessed one of the biggest forces in public education ever, or none. Victoria saw that my, with her own eyes, the damage her school suffered at the hands of standardization and privatization. But today she discusses an issue that while superficially not connected in, uh, to her passion, actually is. And what is that subject today? Anti-intellectualism. Victoria, how are you doing today, my friend? Very well, thank you. Before we even get started, tell us a little bit about you, because I've always been intrigued. The veterinarian still, right? Um, I actually retired this year, but it would be the third time I've retired. <laughs> Oh boy! So, so I bet I was kind of, I guess you would say, called back into service during the peaks of COVID. Um, but technically, now I am retired, and I'm hoping to stay that way. But I did; I was practicing for 37 years, mm -hmm. so I think, I think I'm entitled. To a I think you're entitled, but you don't look like you're practicing for 37 years at all. I mean, yeah. I, I guess some of us keep well, but anyhow, what 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 can I say? But look here. Um, First of all, before we, we, we really get into this anti-intellectualism thing, um, and I think it really, the genesis is really well before. Because, I mean, if you take a look at what the, the passion that you've had, tell us a little bit about 
that school thing about the let, leave no one behind era. Tell me a little bit about that before we get into the subject at hand. Well, I was I had some time um, to actually because of my schedule and, and working at the time I was working um, some on call time. So I had some time during the school day that I could volunteer. And I started doing that on a very regular basis. I, I was there every week um, and you could just see the change. Uh, it put a lot more pressure on the teachers. You know, you have a whole new uh, system, basically, that you have to learn. And what also happened is because it's focused in on math and reading, we saw them cut out a lot of other things because you had to focus on getting kids up to the standard on the test. Um, otherwise, you know, you, you suffered from being labeled as failed, but those weren't really the labels. It was needs improvement. Um, but we already knew which schools needed improvement. And of course, as everybody knows, a lot of that is related to social economic status of the community. Those are the schools that need help the most. Um, so the tests weren't really telling us anything new, and they were occupying instructional time. And that was probably the worst thing we could do. And I think we're, we're seeing the results decades later of that. And we lost the arts, we lost civics, we lost a whole lot of things that really made what a, a well-rounded American is supposed to be. So um, you're actually right. If people taught to the test, people know how to take tests, they do well. And they turn out to be not all that good socially or not that good, well-rounded American altogether. Well, you know, and, you know, and, and I don't I, I, I think you can see a direct correlation between the demise of our educational system, anti-intellectualism and almost going back to the era of the know nothings. Your thoughts on that? Right. Well, and so one of the other things that was cut out, not in all schools, and this is why we have trouble um, explaining this to people who had kids in schools that had a lot of resources, is their resources and their time on science in particular was not cut, like we saw it happen in schools that were in fear of failing the tests. Um, so we had a lot of science cut out of there. So th there is that direct correlation with teaching science correctly, you know, not just facts, but learning, learning to think and critically evaluate something. A lot of that has been lost in a couple generations. Um, so I think that is starting to show up. But I always want to remind people that it isn't all at the education system to blame that anti-intellectualism is a thread running through American society and always has been. And, and it's, ba it's based on emotions, skepticism. Interestingly, <laughs> I want to read just one short passage in your piece. Mm -hmm. uh, it's deep in your piece, but I want to start from the beginning, but it's deep in your piece, but I think it explains a lot. And it's even explained this stuff about just teaching to the test. You said or you said from a quote, we don't educate people anymore. We train them to get jobs. Right. And that came from a professor. So they're, they're seeing that at the higher education level. Um, a lot of people became aware of that 
in K-12. A lot of parents are not happy about that because it basically is a tracking system. Um, if you're testing and then you're putting it in there and you're getting advice, which we did before when, when we went to school, same thing happened, but it was usually a single test. It wasn't all the way through and it wasn't so early on in your, in your learning career. You know, you're still an adolescent. You don't know what you want to do. Um, but, you know, that's one of the things that we, we see happening. And it's gotten worse with technology because the system, of course, I think we talked about this once before, you know, is this human development, capital development system tracked with all the data and the data is all linked. So that that became a real problem that people haven't addressed yet. Um, so, and we're basing that, we're basing recommendations for kids on a pathway earlier in their career a lot of times that isn't necessarily maybe what they want to do later in life. I mean, I guess I was one of those late bloomers that I didn't know I wanted to be a veterinarian. Um, I was told I should be something else. <laughs> And, and, I'm real so, happy. <laughs> that, I mean, so so often that is the case, you know, so often that is the case. Now, you're on a show called Politics Done Right. So, you know, we're going to start to uh, hit the politics domain at some some, some point. And uh -huh. actually, I, I want to hit it because interestingly, I think you hit it up pretty early on in the in the piece. And uh, where um, you actually said many and many people anticipated the arrival of confrontational politics, yet most overlook anti-intellectualism as major contributing factor to our nation's toxic uh, political divide. Yes. And I wanted to put that on a billboard. That was billboard material right there. So go ahead and take that, run with it. Okay. So when you look at anti-intellectualism, and I'm not a political scientist or a, a social scientist, um, but just based on a lot of the things I've read, and you know, particularly, I'm going to grab this book, mm -hmm. particularly this book that gives a lot of history. And I'm no, I'm not a historian either. Remember, I'm a veterinarian. I'm your right. working. Who's the author? I think I know the guy, uh, Richard Hofstadter. I know. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I think I met him actually. Wow. <laughs> I think I, I think if I'm not mistaken in debt, if it's the same person, I met him in at a coffee party retreat in, I want to say Denver. I think it's the same guy. It has to be before 1970, though, because that's when he died. Okay, well, no, it's the wrong person then. It's the wrong person then. And I'm not I'm not old enough to be the. Uh, you see, I mean, the, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. OK, that 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 wouldn't be him because uh at a coffee party, we met a guy with, and, and he wrote a book that had a similar title. And we actually sat down and had lunch. I thought that was the same guy. <laughs> so when I read this book, um, and it was quite some time ago, mm -hmm. and I, I was reading it and thinking to myself, so wait a minute, you know, what am I? I, I don't consider myself an intellectual. I don't work in a university, um, you know, so, but on the flip side, I could see what they're talking about with anti-intellectualism, that you may have some resentment towards people that you see as the elite intellectuals. Well, let me stop you. I need to stop you there because you just said first you classified, you claim to be not you never considered yourself an intellectual. Then you said that people may have resentment for intellectuals. But you said you weren't an intellectual and you never had those any kind of resentment to those you probably considered intellectual, right? 
Um, you know, that's hard to say. I think when you get rejected mm-hmm. by groups of intellectuals, like, and this is what I think I see going on in the country, I most commonly hear people say, I'm not being heard. You know, they're not listening. Yes, I hear that a lot. So you're going to, that's resentment. And I, I got to say, I, I've probably suffered from that from time to time. That's what I mean when I was reading this. I was thinking, is that me he's talking about? But further into the book, you come to realize that we are all intellectual. Mm-hmm. We all have the ability to reason. And that's what, you know, intellect is, is, is reasoning and, and asking why and gathering more information and coming to rational conclusions. You look at the Constitution or, or what the Constitution was based on. And it is really based on rational thought. You know, the whole civility thing is based on us all being rational. So, you know, I started looking at this and looking what's going on with with the culture now. um, And I see why some things are happening, but still working on this idea of so how do you approach that? Um, Because we certainly don't want to let it go on and get worse. Um, So one of the things, of course, I had suggested is, I mean, we can help some with education, but that's down the road. That's the next generations coming up. Um, You know, we have to do something immediately to try and solve this problem that's rising before our eyes. (laughs) Um, That has risen, yeah, before I said. Now, first of all, let's take that. I I think I want to twiddle back a bit because, I, you know, I, I hear I, I hear intellectuals being or rather, I, I hear the attack on intellectuals, which a lot of times may be justified uh, as far as thinking one is better than the other. Right. But I wonder often if that isn't, you know, who calls themselves an intellectual? You remember what you said earlier? It's all about not being heard. My show is a show that goes out and say everybody it's it's your show. Everybody mm-hmm. has a voice. And I want to make sure that everybody's heard. That's why everybody can get a chance to say what they need to say, right? Right. Is not being heard a thing on intellectualism or is it a thing of cliques and and, and tribes? Right. Yeah. So it's kind of a couple different things we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Anti-intellectualism is built, you know, it's it's a it's an attitude. Mm-hmm towards let's say towards experts you could you could use covid as an example also right. so what we've seen is this cultivation of it though and so what you do is tap into a truth right now everybody you know probably has heard if you do something wrong in medicine 25 people are going to hear about it right, right. <laughs> so there is a, a grain of truth that things can go wrong now, you take that grain of truth and then you start turning people against experts saying they're wrong. Now, we're, now we've tapped into the anti-intellectual piece of, in all of us and we're building on it. We're building a movement against truth, basically, against facts. Because, you know, the people that we consider intellectuals, you know, the ones that are the experts in their field, they spend 
their life, basically learning about a one particular topic. Mm -hmm. And then for us to just push that all aside and say, nope, not even going to hear it. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Because there are people resent them as an elite. And that's what I'm saying is intellectuals aren't necessarily elite people. If you listen to people talk, eventually, and this is what I learned practicing medicine, is if you listen to them tell you a story about their animal, eventually they're going to tell you something that's very important. And I think that happens in all kinds of conversations, you know, in the in right. It's amazing because uh, you just said something that my daughter said a couple of days ago, uh, as far as listening to patients, uh, she's uh, in their uh, fourth year med school, had some health issues. But what she said is um, people got on her case for doing a lot of listening to people. But uh, when she had a conversation with a patient, she learned more about that patient's ailments based Mm -hmm. on that simple conversation she's having with the patient, as opposed to just going and ask the patient, what's wrong? Tell me what is it that ails you? So it's, it's amazing. And she said she can walk out of a room and know, well, this, this, that, just from having that conversation. So what you just said is actually something in practice. You've you've seen it with your, your, uh, your uh, patients and, you know, she saw it, saw it, saw it as well. Um, Now, you talk about solving this, right? Mm-hmm. I, I recently wrote a book called um, It's Worth It, How to Talk to Your Right-Wing Relatives, Friends, and Neighbors. And the idea was to um, not appease anybody, but let people answer their own questions. Uh, mm-hmm. The idea being is um, when I talk to people, I usually, for everything that they say, I ask them to go the next step. What's the next step? How do you get there? How do you get? But it's a very tedious task to do that one-on-one. So my question to you is, you're the one who brought it up. You said, yes, the kids later on, we can start educating folks later on so that they would grow up in that proper mindset. Mm -hmm. But the question is, how do we handle those whose mindset already developed that we need to somehow change? And, uh, you know, how, how do we do that? Well, it, like you said, it's tedious and it's having the conversations. Um, so we don't have very good conversations on social media. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so it is a matter of having those conversations, you know, have them at every opportunity. But I think there's one question, you know, that we really need to encourage more people to ask. And that is just the simple question, why? hmm you know, look at what has happened to the media. And I just I just heard someone today on, on on social media saying that they don't listen to any news. <laughs> OK, so we've cut out all of that because there is this grain of truth, right? That that the media is owned by what, six companies? Or right, something? exactly. The okay. main the mainstream. Yeah, right. And so they have control. So there's that piece. But then they're being told by who they're listening to not to listen to any of the news. So, again, that's this, polit- you know, this, this cultivated anti-intellectualism. So now it's done exactly what I believe I mentioned in the, in the blog. Peace. Yes. That now they're, where's the source of information for this person? 
the only source they have is that one person or one organization that they trust. So it's it's a matter of building trust too. Um, but yeah, I know it's going to be a, a long, hard road. <laughs> well, I like I like this from your piece though, um, uh, Victoria. Consider this. You know what I want to say. Consider mm-hmm. this. We are all capable of logical, reasoned thought, mm-hmm. but it does require a concerted effort to resist being ambivalent. Consequently, it requires people devote a little more of their time to looking for truths, thinking clearly, and calling out propaganda and propagandists. That's the last paragraph in mm-hmm. your piece, which I found uh, that that is that is a coup de grace. Now, how do we actually implement that? <laughs> well, I think that I've seen some of that going on on social media. Is is when you even are informing people of the different techniques used by propagandists. And again, I think it's that matter of can you get them to wonder if it's happening to them? If what they're if what they're seeing is propaganda or is is it real news? Is it real fact? Um, that I think that's one way we can do it. We also have to, I think, you know, and we're seeing it happen, we have to build a movement where we're getting you know, people like yourself, I guess myself, although my thing is education, um, but that they're reaching people where they're at. And I'm afraid with politics, sometimes we're, we're really talking over people's heads. I mean, the terminology in political science is not something that I learned in school. I didn't have political philosophy. Um, I just happened to have a lot of books. <laughs> Right. And some time to read. You know, I want to stop here because what you just said is so important. You said you didn't take political philosophy. Actually, very few of us did. But uh, both of us being involved with certain type of organizations, we can understand political. But most Americans don't. And in that language, you know, I mean, it, it, it is funny because. You know, we talk uh, instead of talking about helping people. A lot of times we start using the technicalities of the procedures to help people. Oh, uh-oh, you're cutting out. Oh, okay. can you hear me now? Oh, yep. Okay. okay. Yeah. So what, what I'm saying is it's interesting what you're saying, because as it turns out with the political thing, uh, when you speak in that just political language, mm-hmm. some people that don't understand it immediately tune you out, which you need them not to do so. To right. To make that change, right? Right. And even, you know, it, it's almost like speaking a second language, right? Right. When you say a word, uh, and usually it's a label of some kind, people that aren't, you know, don't spend time reading these things, you have to take a minute to translate what they're talking about, and then you've lost train <laughs> of what of the actual conversation. It- um, <laughs> So, so I think, you know, people that are writing, if they're really wanting to make a point, and the other thing I see out there in journalism is try, you know, we're not seeing enough people try to resist just throwing the label out. Because once you criticize and put somebody in their spot, they're not likely to hear anything else you say. Right. That is that, you know, 
that is so that is so true on, on my program we have all these different this this things you know the, the, the one good thing i like about politics and rights we have a lot of progressives we have a lot of uh they a lot of people think they are trolls but they're not trolls they're there every single day our <laughs> yeah. right wingers are there every day and they enjoy talking and, and you know we converse and i think it's important because um people don't one of the, the places that I go is I started to when I'm a one on one is tell tell people all of what what I'm really about, what I want for society, what I want people to see. Mm-hmm. And most of the times, the most conservative person would be like, yeah, I kind of like that. I kind of yeah. like that, you know, and, right. you know, it, 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 I, I, in my book, it, it's worth it. I gave a few stories about me talking to right-wingers at my special place, Starbucks, when I was there before the pandemic. And it's amazing. I, I remember being so concerned one time speaking to a woman because by the time our conversation was over, she thought I was a conservative Republican because of where I live inside of Starbucks. And by the time it was all over, she was all into Medicare for all, never used the word Medicare for all, just used the things that I wanted to see in healthcare, right? I felt so guilty. I told the woman, ma'am, I, I, I hate to tell you this, or I don't remember exactly what I said, but I'm one of your pinko liberals here in Kingwood, Texas. And what I just described was Medicare for all. And she was like, oh, you know, she said, it was, but we were friends, you know, every time she sees me, you know. <laughs> well, I had the same experience with critical race theory, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the fact that it is not taught in K-12. Right. Okay. <laughs> but I just want to say that before I talk about it. But what I did was I described what they are actually using in schools, you know, which is an anti-bias kind of thing. And basically, it's just learn to get along with other people and, and you know, love yourself and love your neighbors as yourself. That's the kind of philosophy. Right. Well, I, had, I had it in a blog and, and there was an argument going on about critical race theory on Facebook. Right. And so I asked this one lady if she would take the time to, to look at the blog. And she did, which is unusual. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but she came back and said, now, I can agree with that, but that's not what's happening in schools. Which is exactly what's happening in schools. <laughs> yes. So, but it's, yeah, and that's what I mean. You know, they, they really are doing a number on, with political language, you know, with tapping into the language that's going to hook people in and turn them off. Um, well, we that's what... That is what we are not about. And one of the reasons when uh, you posted this, I I contacted you as soon as I read it, because I'm like, this is the kind of material that we need to have out there coming from someone who understands what's going on. And so, I mean, uh, I'm really happy that you wrote it. And you you write a whole lot of good stuff. I've been reading your stuff for, for, for a long time now. But I took a break. I, I haven't written anything for a long time. And this is the topic. This this is tops. Let me just tell you that. All right. I, I think you were on probably two or three years ago when right. we had something talking about the school. So I mean, it was like great. And, um, and really, uh, really, I've told you that before. Um, so anyhow, this is good. The the 
last question that I always ask is usually the gotcha. And it goes uh-huh. this way. You ready? Ah, uh, I guess. <laughs> what would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? <laughs> Ooh, well, actually, I would like to add something to the conversation. Go for like, it. So, so I don't know what the question would be. The question might be was, what did you find interesting when you cleaned your room today? <laughs> okay, what did you find interesting when you cleaned your room today? <laughs> I found an old book that I had read a long time ago. Uh-huh. And, and what it, the title of it is, What Social Classes Owe to Each Other. What Social Classes Owe to Each Other. And it says, we all owe to each other goodwill, mutual respect, and mutual guarantees of liberty and security. So in the season of goodwill, that's what I wanted to add in. (laughs) Well, you know what? I think that's a perfect segue for closure. So Victoria Young, uh, not former, but coffee party blogger writer, author. Uh, thank you so kindly for having been. Okay, go ahead. What did I miss? And, and retired veterinarian. And retired veterinarian. <laughs> thank you so kindly for having well, thank been. Thank you. And I hope your family's doing well. My family's doing well. My daughter is getting better day by day, and we're working hard to make sure and keep it that way. All right. Thank you All so right. kindly Good for being on Politics Done Right. Bye. You can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politicsdoneright. On YouTube Live at politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That's it, folks. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right. And you know how I end this, baby. I am what? Out. Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage...